please turn to Ezekiel 8, and Leslie Casserly will be reading our passage uh, for today. Ezekiel 8. In the sixth year, in the sixth month, on the fifth day, while I was sitting in my house and the elders of Judah were sitting before me, the hand of the sovereign Lord came upon me there. I looked and I saw a figure like that of a man. From what appeared to be his waist down, he was like fire, and from there up, his appearance was as bright as glowing metal. He stretched out what looked like a hand and took me by the hair of my head. The Spirit lifted me up between earth and heaven, and in visions of God, he took me to Jerusalem, to the entrance to the north gate of the inner court, where the idol that provokes to jealousy stood. And there before me was the glory of the God of Israel, as in the vision I had seen on the plain. Then he said to me, Son of man, look toward the north. So I looked, and in the entrance north of the gate of the altar, I saw this idol of jealousy. And he said to me, Son of man, do you see what they are doing, the utterly detestable things the house of Israel is doing here, things that will drive me far from my sanctuary? But you will see things that are even more detestable. Then he brought me to the entrance to the court. I looked, and I saw a hole in the wall. He said to me, Son of man, now dig into the wall. So I dug into the wall and saw a doorway there. And he said to me, Go in and see the wicked and detestable things they are doing there. So I went in and looked, and I saw portrayed all over the walls all kinds of crawling things and detestable animals and all the idols of the house of Israel. In front of them stood 70 elders of the house of Israel, and Jazaniah, son of Shapin, was standing among them. Each had a censer in his hand, and a fragrant cloud of incense was rising. He said to me, Son of man, have you seen what the elders of the house of Israel are doing in the darkness, each at the shrine of his own idol? They say, The Lord does not see us. The Lord has forsaken the land. Again, he said, you will see them doing things that are even more detestable. Then he brought me to the entrance to the north gate of the house of the Lord, and I saw women sitting there mourning for Tammuz. He said to me, Do you see this, son of man? You will see things that are even more detestable than this. He then brought me into the inner room of the court of the Lord, and there at the entrance to the temple between the portico and the altar were about 25 men. With their backs toward the temple of the Lord and their faces toward the east, they were bowing down to the sun in the east. He said to me, Have you seen this, son of man? Is it a trivial matter for the house of Judah to do the detestable things they are doing here? Must they also fill the land with violence and continually provoke me to anger? Look at them putting the branch to the nose. Therefore, I will deal with them in anger. I will not look on them with pity or spare them. Although they shout in my ears, I will not listen to them. I love the stirring of voices after the readings lately. Like you finish this reading, it's like, oh gosh, that was rough. Welcome to some more pleasure reading on a Sunday morning. Uh, good to see you all. 
So just a reminder, we are in the thick of a series on Ezekiel. The year is about 600 B.C., and after hundreds of years of disobedience of the Israelites, uh, God has finally done what he promised to do, which was kick them out of the promised land. He brought the Babylonians, and they conquered some Israelites and carted them off into slavery in Babylon. And Ezekiel is one of those uh, Jews living in exile. Uh, But the worst is still to come. About five years from this scene here, uh, Babylon's going to come back and actually destroy Jerusalem, the capital city, destroy the temple that uh, Ezekiel's just seen. And that is coming. And so Ezekiel's this prophet who's given this message of warning of coming judgment, calling Israel to repent of all that they're doing. And then ultimately, it'll also be this message of hope and restoration uh, as God will bring them back into the land after 70 years. So that's where we're at. And we're spending three weeks, this is week one of three weeks, on the key issue in Israel's disobedience, which is is the issue of idolatry. So we've got three weeks to talk about what is idolatry? And what, are the, what, what did idolatry look like back then? What does idolatry look like today? What are the idols that we have to contend with in our own lives today? <clears throat> so if you look at verse 1 through 4, uh, that kind of, that sets the stage for this scene. Uh, Ezekiel's given another vision from God. This vision takes place about a year after the first vision he had. Remember by the Kebar River, week one, this great vision of the glory of the Lord. This is about a year later. And he's in his house or tent or whatever you live in when you're in a Babylonian encampment in exile. And he's sitting there and some of the Jewish elders have come to his house. They're inquiring of him. They know he's a prophet. So they, as we'll see in this book, they'll come regularly asking, what is, what is God telling you? And while they're there, Um, God gives Ezekiel this vision, and he basically transports him. I think this all just happens in Ezekiel's mind, but he transports him a thousand miles back to Jerusalem. This is a long ways away, to the temple area. And I was thinking this week, I wonder what it would have been like to be one of the elders who's sitting with this guy. You know, they're asking, and I assume he just kind of went into a a trance for a while or, or something, you know, for a couple hours. And then he comes out of it, then he tells him what he saw. But God basically comes and, and gives him this vision, takes him to the temple, and gives him a guided tour of different parts of the temple area, the temple courts and some of the inner courts. And, and of course, uh, what he sees there is um, not good. And before we look at what he sees, I just want to remind us of what the temple represented in ancient Israel. And it's easy for us to lose this, but I can't stress the importance of the temple in the history of Israel. Okay, The, the temple is, is, of course, the place of worship for the Jews. That's where they would gather for the major feasts of the year to celebrate God, to pray to Him, to worship Him. But the temple also represented the forgiveness of sins. That's where people's sins were forgiven. That's where the animal sacrifices were brought. Animals were killed for the sins of the people. So so the temple represented forgiveness of sins. And then most importantly and most pertinent to this chapter, the temple was the place where God himself lived. The temple was basically God's home. 
It was where his presence dwelt. And, and Jews knew that in one sense, God is everywhere. We know that God is all present. But in some specific and special way, God's Shekinah glory, his glorious presence, has come to dwell right here in this temple. And so that's what made Israel unique among all the nations. Yahweh actually lives with us. His presence is with us in this house, in this temple. And that's what gave them a sense of security, right? We, we have God living with us. So the temple was, for, for an ancient Jew, it is the most sacred, holy place in all the world. And, and you need to understand that because it makes what, is, what Ezekiel sees all the more shocking, all the more scandalous. So God takes them on this, this visual tour, and he basically leads them from the kind of the, the outer gates of the temple, and he, each, each stage brings them closer and closer to the Holy of Holies, the most holy part of the temple. And so we get these four scenes, and, and the idolatry that Ezekiel witnesses going on in God's own house, in his very temple. So I want to walk through this pretty quickly with you, okay? So I'm not going to spend a lot of time looking at all these, but let's just look at the four different scenes for a second. I want you to try to, try to picture this as much as you can, okay? God is Ezekiel's tour guide, taking him to different parts of the temple. The first stage is in verse 5 through 7. <clears throat> Take a look at verse 5. God said to me, son of man, look toward the north. So I looked, and in the entrance north of the gate of the altar, so this would be as you're kind of walking into the temple area, I saw this idol of jealousy. So as you walk in, Ezekiel sees this idol. It's probably some statue, some pillar carved out of wood that represents some ancient god, and he calls it an idol of jealousy, meaning this idol is making God jealous, God is saying, this is my house. You're supposed to be worshiping me, and you've put this idol right at the gate of my house. And we don't know what idol this was. Uh, most scholars suggest it was uh, the, a Canaanite god called Asherah. I'll show you uh, one depiction of Asherah. And you can see, Bruce, I can't get that going. Can you for me? Okay. Uh, there's Asherah. She is a Canaanite goddess of fertility, which you may have guessed by looking at her. Um, she is the mother of Baal. We're probably more familiar with Baal. But she was thought to be responsible for uh, fertility, for new life. And so in Canaanite religion, she's the one you'd pray to and you'd go to for children, for family, for, for newness of life. And uh, her religion was also associated with all this kind of funky sexual practice that, that people would do as part of how they would try to basically get her to do what they wanted. And so rather than relying on Yahweh, on Israel's God for life, they are, they are now going to this Canaanite goddess. And her statue is right in the gateway. If, if any Israelite was trying to get into God's temple to worship Yahweh, they couldn't even get in there without being confronted with this other God. And God says, do you see what's happening? He says, well, you'll see even more detestable things than this. So now he takes Ezekiel a little bit farther in, beginning in verse 7, 7 through 13. Uh, this one is really interesting to picture. So he actually says, I want you to try to dig through this wall, and he creates this opening in a wall, and that leads him basically into some dark 
chamber room, okay? It's not the Holy of Holies, but it's some chamber room within the, the temple area. You picture the stone walls, and, and Ezekiel moves in this dark room, and, and you see this scene. I don't know about you. For me, it, it feels like it's some scene straight out of Indiana Jones, you know? It's like you walk in this dark room, and it, as he starts to be able to see, there's all these painted uh, crawling things on the walls. There's snakes and lizards and crocodiles, and there's these elders who are burning incense. You get, it smells of incense. And my, the picture I have is like the walls have all these individual little alcoves, and each guy is, is within his own alcove worshiping to some creeping, crawling god of that time. All right, just this very, as I said, kind of Indiana Jones-like scene. And we don't know uh, all that was going on, but we do know that they're saying, if you look at verse uh, 12, at the end of verse 12, they're saying, the Lord does not see us. <laughs> the Lord has forsaken the land. And God is like, I see what's going on behind closed doors. I see what's going on in this dark room. And what most scholars suggest is that, they, that these, these uh, you know, depictions on the walls are probably of Egyptian origin. Okay, these are maybe Egyptian gods. We're not for sure. Um, but you can think of, of course, you have the Nile River in Egypt and all the kinds of animals that come from the Nile, snakes and crocodiles and lizards. And, and so it's very possible that having come out of Egypt, these are some of the Egyptian gods that they're worshiping. But the idea would be is they are worshiping Egyptian gods because they are wanting to invoke the help of Egypt, because the threat right now is that Babylon the, the, is, is coming from the north, this, this strong kingdom. And so what they're doing, rather than trusting in Yahweh, Yahweh, rather than saying, we need to repent, we need to trust God, he will protect us. They're thinking, God is not watching, God has forsaken us, we need to go down to Egypt and get help. We need to, we need to seek the aid of the Egyptian gods and the Egyptian army, maybe they can help us. In other parts of Ezekiel, you'll see that some of the political leaders try to make alliances with Egypt to try to protect themselves from Babylon. So again, God can't keep us safe. God can't provide. Let's go and seek Egypt and Egypt's gods. And God says to Ezekiel, do you see? Have you seen what's going on? He says, well, I'm going to show you some things that are even more detestable than that. Scene number three. Verse 14, take a look at verse 14. Then he brought me to the entrance to the north gate of the house of the Lord. So you're getting closer to the actual place where God would dwell. And I saw women sitting there mourning for Tammuz. We all know who Tammuz is, of course, so I don't need to talk about this one. Um, you know, we actually have no idea. We don't know who Tammuz is. Um, scholars don't know. Uh, the best guess, there's some accounts, these ancient accounts of, that Tammuz is some Babylonian folk hero, basically. He's, he's an ancient pagan hero um, who died and then rose again. And his dying and, and rising was connected in people's minds then with the dying and rising of the seasons, the, the dying of winter, the rising of spring. And so people would mourn him, people would, would worship him and go to him as part of the agricultural um, needs of the land. You know, we're hoping for a good harvest this year, and so we mourn for Tammuz and we, we pray. To, so, but they're basically going to some Babylonian pagan hero of the past who's going to provide you know, for our sustenance, essentially. And God says, 
do you see what's going on, Ezekiel? Well, I'm going to show you something even more detestable than this. Final scene, verse 16. Take a look. He then brought me into the inner court of the house of the Lord, and there at the entrance to the temple, between the portico and the altar. Okay, it's about as close to the Holy of Holies as we're going to get. There were about 25 men with their backs toward the temple of the Lord and their faces toward the east. They were bowing down to the sun in the east. Okay, you know that many ancient cultures, they worshipped, you know, the heavenly bodies, the sun and the moon and the stars, and, and these, these guys are worshipping the sun. They're bowing down. But, but the physical picture is, is amazing. I mean, you have God's temples would be where you guys are, and it says literally these guys have turned, literally turned their backs on God, okay, and the sun is out here, and they're bowing down to God in the east, uh, there's a commentator, commentator that says it well. He says, in bowing down to the sun, these men were literally lifting their backsides to God. Metaphorically, sunnies to the east, moonies to the Lord. Uh, the insult is blatant and breathtaking. This physical picture that, that captures what was going on in their hearts. So you have this, this tour, and God's saying, have you seen? Have you seen these things that are happening, not just somewhere, but they're happening in my own temple, within my own house? And God responds like a jealous lover would respond, saying, my people, they're, they've they're cheating on me, and they're not doing it in covert ways. It's blatant. It's out in the open, and it's happening in my own house. And he basically says, I'm, I'm, I refuse to put up with this. I'm, I'm not going to put up with this anymore. So what, what's the, the, the most important thing to notice about chapters 8 through 11, that's all part of Ezekiel's, this one vision he has, is to notice what happens to the presence of God through chapter 8 through 11. So it starts, just to remind you, look at chapter, uh, chapter 8, look at verse 4, beginning of our passage. When, when Ezekiel first arrives at the temple, it says this, There before me was the glory of the God of Israel, as in the vision I'd seen on the plain. So God's glory, his presence, is in, the is in the temple. That's exactly where it should be. That's exactly where a Jewish person would expect it to be. But then in verse 6, he says, Son of man, do you see what they are doing? The utterly detestable things that the house of Israel is doing here. Things that will drive me from my sanctuary. What they're doing is so detestable, it's actually, it's going to drive me from my own sanctuary. And what you see happen in chapters 8 through 11 is this slow and, and progressive departure of the presence of the, of the Lord from his own sanctuary. Okay, so let me just show you how this happens. In chapter 9, first God's glory is in the Holy of Holies. It says, now the glory of the God of Israel went up from above the cherubim where it had been and it moved to the threshold of the temple. So now it's moved to the threshold. And then in chapter 10, then the glory of the Lord departed from over the threshold of the temple and stopped at the entrance to the east gate of the Lord's house, slowly moving away. And then finally, chapter 11, then the glory of the Lord went up from within the city and stopped above the mountain east of it. That would be the Mount of Olives. Some of you have been there it's drifting east. The, the spirit lift, and then that's how the vision ends. The spirit lifted me up and brought me to the exiles in Babylon in the vision given by the spirit of God. So God's presence slowly departing from his house. And it is the darkest 
moment in Israel's history. And of course, his presence departs, and then in five years, the Babylonians are going to come in, and they're going to wipe out the city. And the key issue was the blatant and consistent idolatry of the people. That they did not have hearts that, that worshipped God single-mindedly, but their hearts were divided among all these other gods. So we're going to talk about idolatry over the next three weeks and uh, look at what, is, what does it look like? What does idolatry look like today? And I don't know about you, but I, I hear that passage and this feels <laughs> so far removed from my own experience, right? These, these crawling things, incense, dark rooms. There's, I have no context for, <laughs> for what's going on. It feels like a world away from my own life. And yet any of us who have thought about the issue of idolatry know that um, this is actually, the issue that they were wrestling with is incredibly relevant for us today. Um, the God of Ezekiel who wants a people who are devoted to him is the same God today who wants a people who are devoted to him, whose hearts aren't divided by all these other gods. And in the Old Testament, of course, God's temple was in a physical location in Jerusalem, but under the new covenant, where is God's temple today? I'm looking at it right now, right? We, the followers of Jesus Christ, we are God's temple. That's what 1 Corinthians says. Don't you know that you yourselves are the temple of God in which he lives by his spirit? So we are the temple, and God desires today, just as he did then, a temple of, of worshipers who worship him whose hearts aren't divided. And so I, I was thinking this week, gosh, imagine if someone was able to be given a visual tour of my heart, <laughs> to go to the different rooms in my heart, or, or of our lives, and to see the idols that we struggle with. And so this passage, at first glance, feels you know, millions of miles away from our lives, but when you start to think about it, it's actually incredibly relevant to us today. I, I came across this quote this week that I, I really appreciated. Since ancient history, idols have existed in all shapes and sizes. While the ancient idols of statues and ancestral markings may appear strange to me today, my own idols are not strange to me. They call to me personally. They make their persuasive case for why I need them so badly and how much they can do for me. Isn't that true? <laughs> my idols don't feel strange. They feel very natural. They feel very personal to me. And so we're going to talk about today. What are our idols? We're just going to start the conversation. This is going to be a three-week-long conversation. But what are the idols that we struggle with today? When, when I use that word idols, I'm talking about what we actually worship, okay? What are the things that we actually put our trust in? What are the things that capture our imagination in life, that give us a sense of meaning and purpose and security in life? Idols are uh, what one person calls our functional saviors. And what that person means is, you know, God is our savior on paper. <laughs> on paper, Jesus Christ is my savior. He died for me. Uh, you know, he gives me eternal life and he's walking with me. And, and that's what saves me and gives me a sense of security in life. But our functional saviors are, okay, so on paper, Jesus is my savior. But in the day to day, what are the things I actually go to 
to find security? What are the things I actually go for fulfillment, for meaning, for significance? What are the things I point and say, you're the thing I'm going to to get me through life. You're the things that, thing that's going to help me make sense of my life, make me feel like I can make it through this life, and actually be happy in life. Those are our, our functional saviors. So let's get concrete, all right? Let's get real practical, and I'm just going to start throwing some things out. Um, this is pretty low-hanging fruit, I think. But for me, the, the most helpful thing in terms of how do I identify what some of my idols might be, um, there's three S words that have been very helpful for me. Uh, this is first one. Where do I go for significance in life? What gives me a sense of worth, a sense of meaning, a sense of I'm legitimate? I, I measure up in this world. I'm important. Where do I go for my sense of, of significance? On paper, I'm God's child, right? <laughs> That's what gives me significance. But, but in practice, what, what do I actually go to to, give, to have a sense of worth in life? Uh, where do I find my security? Where do I go to feel safe? What do I go to to make my future feel like it's going to be okay because I have this in my life? Thirdly, where do I go to for satisfaction? Where do I, where do I find deep joy? What, what actually makes my heart very excited in life? Um, when I am not thinking about anything, when I have free time, what do I find myself daydreaming dr- about actually? All right, so let, let me throw some out, some out here. You may have friends who can relate to some of these things, okay? So take notes. Uh, let's talk about this. Where do I find my significance? Let me just throw out a couple obvious ones. Big one, career, right? And what you'll notice in almost everything I say, almost everything I say, these are not bad things. Many of these things are very good things. The issue is when good things become ultimate things, when good things take a place that God is supposed to take in our hearts. But career is a big one. What makes me feel like a person of worth? It is my ability to achieve something, to produce something, to make something of my career, to be successful, to have a certain position. Having that makes me feel like I'm okay. I'm enough in this world. I'm a significant person. Uh, And a lot of these idols, um, we don't discover... (laughs) We don't notice them until they get threatened or they get pulled away from us. Um, you ever notice? And then you're like, oh, I didn't realize how much that was a part of things. So, so unemployment, for instance, when, when we go through seasons of unemployment, that can be really unsettling, not just because the finances aren't there, but because we have to wrestle with basic identity questions again. Who, who am I when I'm, not, when I'm not producing, when I'm not achieving? Um, or certainly retirement can be a time that can be a really unsettling time because we've found such of, so much of our identity in, in what we do. Uh, how about this? How about there's, there's a certain role we play in life uh, that gives us a sense of worth. I think of the parents that we, well, you didn't say, but you saw them on the screen uh, at the dedication. Uh, the role of parent, the role of mom, the role of dad uh, can be such a uh, significant and rightly so um, role in life. But it's easy to quickly idolize our children, these little beautiful, wonderful little idols that we can hold on to too tightly and, and, and need them to be a certain way, not for their sake, but for our sake. Because when they're a certain way, my sense of being okay is, is maintained because I find such, such worth in that role. 
And of course, when our kids are misbehaving, that's why it can be so <laughs> unsettling. Or, or when we move into to the empty nest stage of life, that can be an incredibly unsettling time of life. For some of us, maybe it's a very freeing time of life. You know, I don't know. <clears throat> but I think you know what I'm talking about. Uh, how about a gift or a talent? What I call, all of us have some kind of unfair advantage in life, okay? Each of you has some unfair advantage. Maybe you're really smart. Uh, maybe you're really athletic. Maybe you're really funny. Maybe you're very uh, attractive. And at some point in your life, you looked at that thing, whatever it was, and you said, you're the thing that I'm going to ride through this life. You're the thing that's going to give me a sense of I, I measure up because I'm this way. I'm gonna, and I'm going to just take that thing. I'm going to take that to the bank as much as I can. Uh, let's see. I think I have one more. Ah, uh, for you millennials out there, uh, impact is a big one. I want to make an impact on the world. And impact is a great thing, but sometimes if I'm not making an impact, I don't know how to feel about myself. I'm not making an impact at this company. Maybe it's time to change jobs. So impact can be one. All right? Got any friends that are connecting with this? Yep. Uh, how about let's look at the second one. And I'm just scratching the surface, of course. Uh, where do I find my security? What do I go to to feel safe in life, to feel everything's, everything's okay? <laughs> I don't have to be, I don't have to be anxious. Uh, the big one, of course, is the financial. Um, I go to financial resources to feel secure. The fact that I have this amount of money laid up somewhere, that's what makes me feel okay about the future. If I didn't have that, whew, I do not know how I'd feel. And as I mentioned these, you'll, you'll know that like my security and significance and satisfaction, those labels are fluid, right? Some of us go to money for security. Some of us go to money for significance, okay? So they, obviously there's a lot of, uh, you know, back and forth. Um, a relationship. Oftentimes we go to some human relationship. We think, man, if I could just meet that special guy, that I would feel secure. I'd feel safe. If I could meet that special gal, uh, that would bring a security uh, to my life. And if I don't have that, I don't know how to feel. Um, I have a friend who struggles with this one. Um, <laughs> human approval. Uh, I, I need people to recognize me or to like me, uh, to approve of me. And man, when, 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 I, when I anticipate conflict or I anticipate disappointing somebody, whew, like the anxiety just gets off the chart because this is what makes me feel like everything's okay, everyone's doing okay, so I'm doing okay because everyone's okay with me, Okay. Uh, someone between services suggested another idol in the security one is um, they had, you know, creeping, crawling things in ancient world. We have uh, elephants and donkeys that we worship. <laughs> so I feel safe when my party is in power, right? As long as my party's in, in power, and they, that gives me a sense of security. When the other side's in power, whew, I do not feel very secure. Last one, where, where do I find my satisfaction? What what really brings me joy? What gets me excited? When I have free time, what am I daydreaming about? I can put it that way. Um, I think the big one around here is entertainment. Uh, I, you know, you know what brings me satisfaction is my sports team. Like, I find such joy in reading about them. When they win, it doesn't get any better than that. That is, if I'm honest, that's what gets me most excited in life. 
Or maybe it's uh, some, some TV show that you just love to sit down to at the end of the day and run through six episodes at once, you know. Uh, we've got these little phones now, these little idols that we carry in our pockets everywhere we go that uh, keeps us constantly entertained and distracted. But that's a big one. You got the old ones of food and drink, of course. Um, when I'm anxious, I eat. Um, <laughs> it's funny, I'll just, I didn't share this one. So my father-in-law once asked me, um, Dave, why do you eat? And I said, I eat because I'm hungry. And he said, that's exactly what skinny people say. <laughs> you guys eat when you're hungry. He said, other people eat for all kinds of reasons. I eat because I'm anxious. I eat because I'm happy. I eat because I'm, you know, whatever. Food is a classic one. Drink, of course, alcohol is a big one. Uh, let me ask you this question. Let's say this Friday night you are going to a party with some friends, dinner party at somebody's house, okay? And you're excited about this party. Here's a little test case for you. What if at 5 p.m. that night I said, good news is everyone's coming, bad news is there's not going to be any alcohol at the party, okay? How much do you feel the loss of that? How much do you go, oh, this is going to come to you. I guess I'll still see my friends, but the joy is in the drinking with friends. So food and drink, of course. One more, sex, of course, a huge one. And we have such a sexualized uh, culture out there today that this is, a, this is a big one. These are what I'm calling our functional saviors, the, the, the things that we actually go to to find significance, security, satisfaction. So that I, I might say, I've got some examples here. On paper, my sense of worth comes from God. I mean, on paper, yeah, I'm God's child. My sense of worth comes from God. But when I get praise and recognition from other people, man, that really helps. I mean, that really makes a difference. On paper, knowing that God will never leave me is what, me, what makes me feel safe about my future. But having that 200K stored away in an account somewhere, man, that really helps. That really <laughs> gives me a sense of security. Um, on paper, at the end of a stressful day of work, I know I can always go to God to experience peace. But a couple glasses of wine sure do help too. Okay, these, these functional saviors, the, practically the things we go to, to find fulfillment. And when they're pulled away from us, we feel an inordinate amount of anxiety or anger, or stress, or despair, maybe even. You guys connect with this? No, okay. <clears throat> so we got three weeks to, to think through this and to process this together. And so I, I want to give you a challenge on this first week as a front end. And, and what we're doing this week is just raising awareness of what are these things that I wrestle with. You probably already know a lot of them, but... I want you to experience some real time this week. So I've got a challenge for you. I'm committing to do this. I want to challenge you to do this. Um, I want you to commit to a journal this week. I know some of you won't do it, but I would love to see some of you do it. Uh, ideally, that would be a journal on paper. If you want it just to be a journal in your own head, that works too. But I would encourage you to take five to 10 minutes at the end of the day just to review, your, look back over your day and here's what I want you to do. I want, to, I want you to notice the most positive emotions you experienced that day, and then I want you to notice the most negative emotions you experienced that day. And you're going to just notice, when was, I, when was I happy? When was I really excited? When was I anxious? When was I angry? 
When was I cranky? Whatever it might be. And just notice those and start asking, what, what, what might that tell me about the idols that lurk underneath, all right? So first question is, notice the positive emotions. Uh, when was I most excited, happy, proud, or pleased today? You might end of the day and you say, you know what, if I'm honest, and this is all about being honest, let me just say this, this is no judgment this week, okay? We got three weeks to talk about this. No judgment on yourself, you're just noticing. I'm not making judgments, I'm not trying to fix anything. I just want to, with God, I want to just notice what I experience and what that might tell me about what's going on here. And you might come to an end and say, you know, if I'm honest, you know what the most exciting part of my day was? It was sitting down to that show with a bowl of ice cream. Like that moment right there, that was the best part of my day. Okay, what does that, what does that tell me about what's, no judgment, just, I'm, gonna, I'm just going to notice that. Maybe it's, um, you know, I was in that team meeting at work today and my boss said that that idea I had was a really good idea. He said in front of everybody, and man, that, man, that felt really, really good. Okay, so what does that, what does that say? <clears throat> you might end the week and you might say something like, I just realized I spent 10 hours this week on ESPN.com reading about a football game that already happened, and I loved every single minute of it. Okay, what does that tell me? And then secondly, notice the negative ones. When was I anxious today? Or when was I angry? And if you don't want to, you know, cop to anger, when was I cranky, okay? Whatever, when was I frustrated? Whatever, you know, euphemism for anger you want to choose for yourself. When did I notice anxiety? Gosh, if I look back, you know what? When I looked at my inbox and there was that email from that one church member, and I hadn't even read it yet, but that I, just, I felt my heart get filled with anxiety just seeing the name. Okay, what's that about? That doesn't happen to me very often, actually. <laughs> I was so angry when I told my kids to clean their room, and I walked into the room 10 minutes later, and the room was still trashed. Why was I so angry in that moment? And again, no judgment. Just sit with it. My encouragement would be this. Let the emotion be an invitation to you to say, what is this emotion? What might it tell me about my idols? Let it be an invitation to an exploration. And this is just about experiencing ourselves in real time. And by the end of next week, we might come and say, gosh, I see. I see how this stuff plays out on a day-to-day basis. And then we give it to the Lord, and, and we'll have time to do that. But Let's just take the time to, to be aware of these things, all right? So let me pray for us. And pray for this journey that I hope you will go with, with me on. Well, Father, as we have sung today and will sing, we acknowledge that you are the only God, that you alone are God, you and no other. You are the maker of heaven and earth. You are the creator of all things. You are our savior. And we acknowledge that. And yet we also acknowledge and confess that other things capture our heart's deepest affections. And a lot of them are great things. They're gifts that you've given us. They're not bad things. 
And yet sometimes the way we hold on to them, uh, they can become actually a, a barrier to experiencing you. And so I pray, Holy Spirit, that as we go on this journey together over the next three weeks, that you would reveal to us these idols of our hearts and that we would be open to that, that we wouldn't try to fix them right away. We wouldn't try to, we wouldn't even feel, just, just be open to the truth of ourselves before you. And we know that you're, you have grace for us, and so there's freedom to just to be completely honest. But that you might expose these things, and ultimately our prayer is that you would free us. Because I do believe that freedom is waiting on the other side of these idols for us. So we, we, we offer this time, these coming weeks to you, and pray that you would do fresh work in our lives, and that we might uh, walk through that together, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.